Seeking mental health care can be overwhelming and even scary, but it doesn't have to be. I'm Dr. Josephine McNary, and I'm committed to making this process easier for you. Each week, my expert guest and I unravel a different form of therapeutic intervention in order to bring comfort and understanding and to help you get back to your true self. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Mind Stories. Today, I'm pleased to have on as our guest, Dr. Judy Ho. Dr. Judy is a triple board certified and licensed clinical and forensic neuropsychologist, a tenured associate professor at Pepperdine University, and published author of the book, Stop Self-Sabotage, which was published by HarperCollins in 2019. She maintains a private practice in Manhattan Beach, California, where she specializes in comprehensive neuropsychological assessment and expert witness work. Today, we're talking about the transdiagnostic approach to psychotherapy, which is a therapeutic approach that enables clinicians to utilize the best fit evidence-based therapy for their clients' needs. Welcome, Dr. Judy. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, Dr. McNary, I'm so happy to be with you. So good to connect again. Yeah. You know, we were just talking before we started recording about what to talk about because you have so many different things and specialties that we could touch on today. But we decided that I think it would be best to talk about something called the transdiagnostic approach to therapy and treatment. That's right. And I'm really passionate about this. This is a very new area of research still, but it comes from a lot of the principles that have been established in clinical research, which is really taking evidence-based approaches of psychotherapy and applying them to whatever the person is experiencing. So of course we know diagnoses are very important because that's where the treatment plan is developed and you know what you're working on. But sometimes I think when treatment is really pigeonholed into this treatment is for depression and anxiety, but maybe it's not for these other conditions, then people believe that that might not be for them. But there are so many treatments where the principles when applied to a symptom or a problem or an area of distress, it can be used across the board, no matter what the diagnoses are. And so that's really the general view behind transdiagnostic approaches and why it was born. Interesting. Well, let's back up even before that and talk about what is an evidence-based treatment? What is that? So an evidence-based treatment means that it's something that has been verified and established in multiple research and clinical trials to work well for a certain population. So when we say something is evidence-based, there's actually a lot of caveats to that because we have to talk about what is it evidence-based for? So is it evidence-based for children, for people with obsessive compulsive disorder, for people who are at all different levels of socioeconomic status? You know, there's definitely specifications even within the evidence-based approaches, but the general rule is that it has to be established to work well in clinical trials and done by at least two different research groups so that it's not just this little group of people who keep doing research to validate each other, that there's independent people doing the same protocol and saying, yep, this worked for our population too. And then once it works in a more of a clinical trial, very controlled type of research, then it's used in community research as well, where then you go treat people who are more as usual in the community, they might have depression and a number of other conditions. Whereas in the clinical trial, you were only looking at people with depression only. And so once you do these varying steps of validating that it works for all of these different people and it's past this scientific rigor, that's when you can define something as evidence-based. So it takes a while. It takes a while to have an evidence-based treatment. I mean, probably several years to be conservative. Right. So, okay. So this idea that it's 
really finding the type of therapy that matches in an evidence-based way what the person's needs are, right? That's correct. Yeah. And it's all about, again, meeting the person where they're at. And I think that that's a really important part of all evidence-based approaches really is like, how do we best address the problem, make the person feel better and more efficacious again? And I think that that's where all of the flexibility came in with this idea of transdiagnostic approach. When we were first studying psychotherapies, it was much more rigid because the science wasn't there yet. And so we really had to work within these very strict confines, but now we know what works. And now there's this more flexible application of, well, can we play around with the techniques themselves as opposed to packaging it all together as one type of treatment? So does that mean, because I, different therapists and psychologists have different specialties, right? So I could imagine there's not one therapist who says, oh, I do transdiagnostic approach. Cause that means they're an expert in every different form of therapy there is though. Right, exactly. And so I think that when people say that they incorporate transdiagnostic treatments, it just means that they maybe don't define themselves by a specific modality. So obviously, a lot of people will say, I'm a cognitive behavioral therapist, or I'm a psychodynamic therapist, and that's their primary mode of operation, they kind of operate from that lens. But somebody who's transdiagnostic will say, but I also learn other evidence-based techniques so that I can do what's needed. So even if I'm primarily a cognitive behavioral therapist, perhaps I've learned some techniques from the interpersonal therapy dimension when I feel like that might apply to somebody's issues, for example, with trauma or with attachment. So now I have other tools in my toolkit to teach my patients. Got it. So in that toolkit, what are those tools? What are those evidence-based therapies that that bag consists of? So for every different clinician, it can involve a number of different things. And I think that we've seen a lot of transdiagnostic treatment applications for, let's say, PTSD. And so some of the tools that could be in a clinician's toolkit could be cognitive behavioral therapy techniques for trauma. So a lot of these have to do with modifying your thoughts, learning how to manage the thoughts that maybe aren't really reflected in reality, but nevertheless bother the patient, doing behavioral activation, because sometimes people with PTSD will avoid, they'll stop doing things that they enjoy. And so those are cognitive behavioral applications. But what we've also found is that with PTSD, they really respond to, for example, the skills that are taught in somatic experiencing, where they really link up with their physiology and understand how to soothe themselves, how to learn other methods of self-soothing through connecting with their body and their breath, and really understanding how to manipulate physiological symptoms when they come up. And you might also mix that in with other skill sets from psychoeducation. So even teaching the patient, what does the fight or flight response look like and how sometimes the fight or flight response can get ignited, even if you're not really in trouble. And for people with PTSD, that happens a lot. And so teaching them even just that educational piece, because sometimes people don't know that it's a fight or flight response that gets triggered. And then they start having a panic attack because their interpretation is, oh my gosh, I'm having a heart attack or I'm dying. And so you can see how with this example of somebody who has PTSD, a transdiagnostic treatment can include psychoeducation, cognitive behavioral therapy, and somatic experiencing to address the symptom levels of what we know PTSD to consist of. Interesting. So is that how you practice therapy then? 
Yeah, you know, I think that this is something that has emerged more as a concept for me in the past several years. And my first exposure to it was actually helping some of my dissertation students at Pepperdine University do their own dissertation projects on transdiagnostic therapies. And one of the first ones that we had looked at was transdiagnostic therapies for OCD. But then we realized, oh, a lot of what we think about with OCD and ruminations specifically within OCD the techniques can be applied to so many different other things where you might have rumination. So anxiety disorders, depression disorders, to name a few. And I started to realize that there was real value in expanding my repertoire. I used to define myself pretty purely as a cognitive behavioral therapist. And I still do define myself by that primarily, that I mostly use cognitive behavioral therapies. But in the last eight to 10 years, I've definitely expanded to some of the third generation CBTs, which includes dialectical behavior therapy and acceptance and commitment therapy. But I've also incorporated other techniques like somatic experiencing and certainly psychoeducation. And so now I would really define myself more as a transdiagnostic thinker in terms of how I conceptualize a treatment plan for my patients. It seems as if you're kind of a personal tailor. So instead of someone going to a store and saying, I'm going to buy this suit, you are basically creating a suit that fits them perfectly. Yeah. And I think that that definitely is a great analogy because it's this idea that everybody is individual. And even two people who say that they have major depressive disorder, their manifestations of that condition can be very different. And if you try to apply the same set of approaches to both people, it might work well for one person, but not so much for the other. And so it's really this dynamic process of getting to know the patient, having a really strong problem list so you know the types of things you need to address, and then even bringing the patient into the conversation. I have a lot of patients who are very much into the idea of understanding their treatments at a deeper level. And I really encourage everybody to be involved in that way because you should have a say in your treatment plan. You should have a say in what you're working on. And it really excites my patients when we talk about this idea of transdiagnostic approach, because just like your analogy with the personal tailor, we talk about the toolkit a lot. It's like, this is your individualized toolkit. And I'm going to introduce you to a number of tools and some of them will work great for you and some maybe not so much, but that's okay. Because at the end, hopefully you have your very individualized tailored toolkit that you can take with you and you can help yourself. I mean, I think that's what all of us hope for with our patients, that they have that feeling of efficacy. It's great that they come to see you and they need you, but it's also great when they can do some of it on their own. Right. And I'm just wondering, so you had mentioned because you began and you had mentioned you used to be more of a purist of a CBT. So what are the shortfalls of being a purist in in your opinion? I I think we kind of talked about it, but I'm just curious to hear more. Yeah. Well, I love what you said about being a purist. And I think that sometimes when you're a purist, I kind of think about it in terms of my own professional development. So maybe the first 10 years as I was training and during the early years of my career, you're a purist because you cling to those principles because they feel more comfortable too. Like you have those boundaries, you know exactly what you're doing. You've practiced them hundreds of times. And then it's almost like as you get better at your job, as you become more experienced and you see the complexity that's out there, you also learn to become a bit more flexible in your approach. And that feels kind of developmental for me. I feel like a lot of people are purists earlier on in their careers. And then as they do more and more work, like, wow, like being a purist 
hmm, maybe there's room to be more flexible because now I feel more comfortable in my clinical practice and I can be more flexible and I can still have confidence that I'm doing things that are helpful to my patients. And so I think that that's part of it. But the shortfalls of being a purist, of course, is that you might miss some of the complex issues that might be better addressed with a different type of approach. And so there might be some blind spots. And it doesn't mean that you still can't help your patient with your purist ideologies, but maybe sometimes there's a better way. And also not everybody responds to CBT the same way. So I've had some patients who just love it. They think it's like the best thing ever. It's skills-based, it's really goal-oriented and that's what they need. But at the same time, some of those same patients who say they love CBT, they kind of love it because they don't do the deeper work and they're kind of afraid of the deeper work. So being able to bring in some of those elements is actually ultimately helpful for those patients, even though in the beginning stages of your work with that patient, maybe that's all they can do is like CBT skills only. But then once you have that rapport and they trust you more, you can say, okay, let's talk a little bit about your childhood traumas and let's bring in your attachment issues into the picture a bit more. And unless you have these other tools in your toolkit, you wouldn't be able to do that if you're a purist. Mm -hmm. So then I'm thinking about from the consumer or the individual searching for therapy, for help for something. This is kind of a broad question. How do they know the help they're getting is the help that is the right kind of help for them? Such a good question. And I feel like I liken it a lot to when I was a kid or when I was young and I was going to choose a medical doctor. I never used to question any of my medical doctors. It's like you just go to one and you just listen to what they say. And then you just go away from that experience, just doing what they say that you have to do. I think with therapy, especially, but with all kinds of doctors and treatments, you as the consumer, you need to take the time to really figure out if this person should be the person that you should entrust your care to, right? And so people should be absolutely interviewing their psychiatrists and therapists and talking to a couple of different people before you settle on one. And if something doesn't feel right, getting a second opinion or maybe switching therapists. And so I think, you know, knowing whether or not a treatment is right for you, I think there's kind of a balance of, is this person someone that you've like vetted to a degree, ask some questions, feel comfortable with. But after that, is this a person that you can truly have that continuing dialogue with so you can check in? I don't feel any better. It's been four weeks and my depression isn't any better, even though you've been teaching me these skills. You need to be able to have that honest conversation so that you can self-assess at all of the different levels. And I think as long as you feel like there's progress being made and you understand where it's going, then that probably means that it's working, you know, but right. if you stop making progress, you should feel free to have that conversation. I feel, feel like people don't do that enough with their therapists. Right. And I think that also brings you back to, I mean, you talk about evidence-based therapies, right? Mm-hmm. But sometimes non-evidence-based therapies, maybe someone is in, in a non-evidence, well, I guess most are evidence-based therapies, but it's really the therapy that is best for the individual is the one that allows them to make the progress that they need to be making, right? And the one that they feel comfortable doing, right? And so I guess the point of the evidence-based therapies are to somehow give you a guide to kind of help you say, okay, well, this is research that shows these types of therapies are important, but it really does depend on the individual and how they really do interact with the therapist. 
Yes, exactly. And so the predominant way of practicing transdiagnostically is actually what we call the modular or common elements approach. And so as a consumer, as a client, this is something that's important to know, the modular and common elements approach is the most pragmatic method for developing a transdiagnostic treatment and talking to your therapist about it. So what this approach consists of is it's a variety of therapeutic strategies and elements that we have seen to be evidence-based that have demonstrated effectiveness across time and across people. And so some of these elements might be things like cognitive restructuring, exposure, relaxation techniques, and the like. And this modular common elements approach applies these strategies then selectively to each patient based on what the individual is saying their presenting problem is, as well as any other demographic and contextual factors. And this is what allows the clinician to design these like specifically tailored programs, as we were talking about earlier, for each patient. So essentially, it's almost like you start out with a with a list of 30 types of strategies. And then you talk to the patient about their problem list and what their goals are. And then from those 30 strategies, you select the strategies that you believe is going to be best fit for that patient. Interesting. And in a way, it kind of allows them to state their goals and to be able to really keep track of their progress, right? And it's yeah. not a vague process to them at all. It's clear. Totally. I think what's really nice about it is that this particular type of approach is nice because it's concrete. It's almost like if you wanted to be that person, if you were that type of therapist who wouldn't mind um, having your client see it, you could just show them the menu. It's like, here are the 30 skills that I generally teach patients. And from this 30, we're going to select the five that we think is going to be a great start for you for the first phase of our therapy. And it can be kind of fun. It's almost like selecting a menu of different treatment strategies that you learn. Well, so I see your book behind you. So I really want to ask you about your book. There's so many things we can talk about. I mean, I would love for you just to talk to me a little bit about your book, Stop Self-Sabotage and how that plays into what we're talking about now too. Absolutely. So thank you for asking about my book. My book, Stop Self-Sabotage, was published by HarperCollins. It's been really awesome because it's a six-step program that I developed. And in many ways, it really is born out of this transdiagnostic idea where really it's about identifying what the problem is. And in this case, it's self-sabotage in different areas of your life, whether it's relationships, career, cultivating healthy habits, or kicking bad habits. And so for that problem list, I've devised essentially a transdiagnostic treatment plan for people to follow. And it has six steps. And the transdiagnostic treatment plan includes strategies that are taken from cognitive behavioral therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, attachment theory, dialectical behavior therapy, and values-based living, which is also incorporated into acceptance and commitment therapy. And so it includes all of these different types of techniques that are drawn from other areas of evidence-based work, and then putting them together in a way that addresses the problems that somebody might be presenting in these areas. And so it was a really fun process for me to get to put it on the page. And I am still at the core of such a CBT therapist. So I love things that are visual. I love activities. I love worksheets. And so the book has a lot of those elements still, but it's using those elements to teach some of these other techniques that come from other modalities of treatment. So why did you pick self-sabotage and not another 
time. <laughs> well, I feel like self-sabotage is such a universal concept that most people can understand. It's like either you've heard it from someone or you've used it to describe yourself at one point. And it's really just this concept where sometimes you get in your own way despite your best intentions. And it's like, why did I hold myself back there? Or why, despite the fact that I had a great plan for how I was going to get more healthy eating more consistently that all of a sudden I just gave up and it's been a month and I haven't gone back to it. And sometimes it feels inexplicable, but I explain in the book that really it's kind of built into our biology and evolution in some ways, because of the fact that as human beings, we really only have two primary drives and the two primary drives are attain rewards and avoid threat. That is how we survive as a species and as individuals. But sometimes there are things that happen to us, maybe experiences, maybe certain personality traits, maybe ways of interpreting events that happen to us that cause us to overestimate the threat. And when we overestimate the threat, even if it's a psychological one, our body has the same reaction, which is to ignite that fight or flight. And sometimes it ends up holding us back because we become more fearful over time of the goal because we're overestimating the emotional and psychological threat that comes with it. And you start to actually back away from it. And sometimes that process is kind of subconscious. Like if you really thought about it, you could see it happening, but on the conscious level, you sometimes have no idea, no explanation why it's happening, but it's really is in essence, a, a way that your mind tries to protect you from harm. And so it's really about getting back to that balance again, you know, like having a little bit more balance between attaining rewards and going for those goals but managing the threats in a more realistic way. Interesting. Well, as you were talking about that, it makes me think about your experience. I know you as someone who does a lot of psych testing, and I almost think of you as this like expert in from like the beginning in terms of diagnostically how to diagnose somebody and then how to just kind of move through and say, well, what now that we know the diagnosis, this is the treatment plan. I mean, it almost feels like this very complete approach to an individual. So right. that was just my thought. <laughs> oh, thanks. You know, I mean, I love it. I think it's so interesting to get to meet somebody, be able to help them figure out diagnostically what's going on, and then to be able to be part of developing a thorough treatment plan and then to see them go through the treatment plan. So if I'm evaluating a patient, I don't necessarily then treat that particular patient. I oftentimes will then just refer them to the people I think are going to be able to serve them the best based on my evaluation results. And I have to say, it's such a joy to be able to see people take that information and work with great professionals like yourself, and then be able to make progress. And then to see them a few months later for a check-in and they're like, okay, this is how this has changed my life so far. That's very rewarding for me to kind of see it from beginning to end in that way. Right. Okay. So let's say you evaluate somebody and it's clear they have OCD. They clearly have OCD. You treat OCD. So you might be the provider that you think would be the most appropriate, but I'm sure you refer to purists once in a while, because you think that's oh, the yeah. more appropriate referral versus kind of more of the transdiagnostic approach. Exactly. And so sometimes if I see somebody, for example, who has the classic textbook type of OCD, we know the gold standard approach is exposure and response therapy. And I really hunt down like who actually does that? Because part of the problem, of course, is that sometimes people will say they do it, but then they don't really do it. And that's where, like you were saying, I almost take the opposite approach. I interview a couple of clinicians to decide who I'm going to refer to. And I really grill them on like, how do you implement exposure and response therapy exactly? 
Can you describe to me your method? Because I want to make sure they're actually getting what they need to get to really kick this problem. And so, like you said, there's always room for purists. And as a purist once myself, I still believe in that approach very much for a lot of different types of techniques. Right. And I also think maybe during and maybe you agree with this, that during the acute period of it, depressive spike or an extreme anxiety disorder with a lot of panic symptoms, a pure approach of something like a CBT approach is exactly what they need. But as time goes on, it's clear that it's kind of more of this global approach that is probably the best fit for them too. Absolutely. It's kind of like as time goes on, as you were mentioning, there's more complexities and contextual factors that you start considering. And that's when transdiagnostic approaches can be super helpful. But in the beginning, if somebody's coming to you and they're saying, I have a panic attack every time I even leave my house. I mean, that's when you have to come in with that purist approach to say, let's start with the anxiety hierarchy and let's really work that system, which is in the cognitive behavioral therapy realm. And once you actually achieve relief and you can actually kind of live your life with some normalcy, then let's talk about those contextual factors that are maybe going to be things that you have to watch out for the risk factors for this to come back again. And let's think about that and how the transdiagnostic approach might fit into that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you enlightened me and educated me about transdiagnostic approaches. And honestly, I didn't know what it was before we started talking. <laughs> so I'm so actually, new. <laughs> it is new. And it's kind of this exciting new thing to offer to people, but it's not new at the same time, right? It's a best fit model, really. Yeah. It's a best fit model. That's such a great way to describe it. And that's what excites me. It's like really recognizing people at the individual level. As you know, research is the best tool we have for understanding whether something works, but research is in the aggregate. Research is all about summarizing. It's about looking for broad explanations and patterns. And of course that's super useful, but when you get to the individual level of treating one patient versus another, that's where that transdiagnostic approach is really exciting because like, okay, you're taking all of that aggregate research that is so helpful and so informative, but then you're now being able to package it for the individual. And that's such a privilege to be able to do that when you work with somebody yeah. one-on-one. Yeah. Well, thank you for enlightening me. And I, I hope the listener is enlightened. Any last words before we say goodbye? Well, I just want to say thank you for having me on your podcast. And I always see a psychiatrist and a psychotherapist as like the one, two punch power team. I mean, if you are one of those people who is lucky, who gets to have both, like that's the most amazing thing for your mental health care that you kind of get the best of both worlds and the best of both expertises. So, well, thank you for being here. And I loved listening and hearing about all these things. And I, I want to check out your book and start thinking about how this could be helpful for the people I see. So I appreciate it. And I'll make sure your website is on the episode link so people can learn a bit more about you as well. Awesome. Yeah. And I actually do a lot of tips and guides based on scientific programs on my social media. So if people wanted to, they can follow me on Instagram at Dr. Judy Ho as well. And there's a lot of tips on that, that I kind of dole out every day. And it's like a a job in itself though, like social media, but it's like a whole other project, but it it really brings me a lot of joy to do it. So it can reach a lot more people than just the people you see, you know, in your practice on a daily basis. So there's an impact there, right? For sure. All right. Well, thank you so much. And I'll make sure all your info is out there so people can learn more about you. Thank you so much. Take care. 
This has been Mind Stories with remote appointments in California and offices in downtown LA, Santa Monica, Hermosa Beach, Marina Del Rey, Echo Park, and Santa Barbara. Cal Psychiatry specializes in medication management, mood and anxiety disorders, alternative therapies, women's mental health, and more to help you get back to your true self. Visit us at calpsychiatry.com. Thanks for listening to Mind Stories and don't forget to subscribe. Thank you.